Welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and culture from a different angle. And I hope you are like me. You don't want to hear the word COVID-19, you know what I'm talking about, anymore, right? Every time I turn on the news or Facebook, that's all we hear. And I was talking about doing a podcast, and someone says, you should do one on COVID-19. I think there is about 8 billion of those podcasts out there right now, and if that's what you're looking for, you can go ahead and go to a different podcast. But if you want to look at the Christian life from a different angle, and today we are really going to uphold that slogan, this will truly be a dog backwards um, podcast. We are going to talk about the subject of hell, and we're going to look at it from a different angle. So let me play some intro music and we'll jump right in. So how on earth could we do a podcast on hell and look at it from a different angle? But there might be something that you're not aware of that I, that I found out about five or six years ago. And I, I had heard and read many different books on hell, but now for the last year or so, it has been one of the consuming subjects. So the way my brain tends to work is I will find a subject that interests me and then I will just consume mass quantities of information. And then I try uh, to regurgitate those in a way that people who don't have the time to read theology books for a living like I do might be able to understand it. And there is some really interesting stuff on hell that I had never heard growing up in church. I know that there are people who say that hell isn't real. I am not one of those. Hell is a very real place. The Bible talks about it quite a bit. Jesus talks about it more than anybody else. But there are some aspects about hell that are debatable. And so I am going to play a devil's advocate today, and I don't mean that literally, because wherever you fall on this subject between is hell eternal or do people suffer for a while and then they cease to exist, whatever sign of the view you fall on, you can still be a Christian. Yes, people, that is true. You can have different views and still be a Christian. In fact, this is one of the ones that I think should be on the table in the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church, uh, in their statement of faith that all Southern Baptist churches hold to, one of the views is that hell is eternal, eternal conscious torment. It's called ETC is how they abbreviate it. And there is a large voice of scholars and good godly people who would say there is a hell, people do suffer, but it's not eternal Now, why on earth and how could they ever make such an argument? I'm sure whatever argument they are going to make for this case, and this case has two different names, right? One is easy, the other uh, sounds hard. But So the two different names, one is conditional immortality, and the other is annihilationism, right? So that's the same view. It has two different names. So there's eternal conscious torment, and then there's conditional immortality slash annihilationism. So most of you know the arguments for eternal conscious torment. You know that there are verses that seem to say that hell is 
forever. So what I want to do is I want to expose you, maybe not convince you of anything like that, but I just want to expose you to different arguments than what you've heard before. Oftentimes when you grow up within a certain denomination, by default, you're like, well, whatever this denomination says about this certain subject is the right view. I'm sure these are smart people and they've studied it. But there are views within Southern Baptist Church that have changed over time, right? So we should be looking at the way the Bible tells us to do to test everything, including the Southern Baptist or Methodist, whatever you grow up in, Catholicism, right? Um, Whatever you grow up, you become highly accustomed to the language and the thought process especially if you're a kid and you've been going since you were a kid, there are certain ways of looking at words that you don't even realize have kind of been like pre-decided that you should view it this way. So we want to test everything, hold on to good, let go of every kind of evil. So how on earth could these people, I mean, I'm sure they're heretics, right? That would argue that hell is not eternal. Well, it comes from verses like this. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. It says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. So this this is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody died, and it says, and they were condemned to extinction. And then it says, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, all throughout this podcast, I'm going to ask you to just ask yourself a question. If this verse was all that you had on eternal hell. And it's not. So we take all of scripture together. Scripture interprets scripture. So we don't have to pull from any outside source. We just look at what scripture says. But if you were to ask Peter, hey, what happens to the wicked? Because this is the question that he's responding to. And he uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. And it says, Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, not torture, not eternal punishment, but to extinction. And as far as I know, I'm no scholar, but To go extinct means to cease to exist. He says that is an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. But that's probably the only verse, right? And then we just take the rest of Scripture and we look at it and um, we know that, oh, he's just using a figure of speech, but every other verse talks about eternal hell. Well, that's what we're going to look into. So uh, there's another verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 and 16. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So there's people who are being saved and people who are perishing. What is this perishing like? It says, One, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So some are going to die, and then it's like there's what's called the second death. It's like they die again, and we live, but then we have a second life, a new life, an eternal life. And see, this subject about is hell eternal often comes from the argument that the way that people live forever is by being in the garden with God, and there is a tree of what? Can you guess? Tree of life, right? So we find the tree of life in the beginning and end of the Bible. There's a saying that we live between the trees right now. We're in between the trees. So in Genesis 3.24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, why do you have to guard the way to the tree of life? So people do not live forever in their sinfulness. You can only live forever 
if you are pure and righteous in the presence of God, who is by nature eternal. But Revelations 2 says the same thing. Uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the Bible begins and ends with a tree that we are reunited in paradise. Well, what does this have to do with hell? Here's an interesting question. If we live forever by eating from a tree, is there a tree in hell? The Bible never says there's a tree in hell. Well, if eternal life with God, there is a tree of life. And those are the people who are given immortality. Do the wicked gain immortality? And if so, are they just upheld by God's decree that they will be tortured forever? I mean, these are fair questions. Some of you are already like, nope, this is some liberal hippie stuff that I ain't going down that road. Look, this is uh, highly conservative Southern Baptist scholars hold a different view than what we traditionally know. And all we're going to do, it is not wrong to ask questions. You know me, I'm a curious person. If you've listened to this podcast for a little while, I just like to ask questions. I want to know. I want to know. And if somebody says, you can't even bother to ask, well, that means that we are shutting down our brain and we're just, it's just like a knee jerk reaction. So I'm a fan of the Old Testament. And this is one reason that I've come upon this conversation that is going on in scholarship. I love the Old Testament. You know what the Bible and the Old Testament says about hell? Nothing, right? Almost, almost nothing. The term we translate hell, uh, Gehenna is one of them, Hades is another. There's different terms. They all kind of get translated hell. So sometimes in our English Bibles, it does us a disfavor. But in the Old Testament, you get almost nothing on hell. But if you were to ask, if you were to ask the Old Testament, if the Old Testament was a person, hello, Old Testament, if you were to ask them what happens to the wicked, then you get one unanimous voice, and it's the wicked are destroyed. So like Psalms like 37, 38, it says, but transgressors, transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So this is typical language, but it it keeps going. So I could just sum up a whole bunch. My goal is is to make what is a four-hour lecture that would melt your brain a 30-minute podcast. So I'm going to I'm going to move fast. If anyone is interested, I have a 13-page paper I wrote on this subject. You can reach me at calebmore.tv and I'd be glad to send it to you. You have to excuse any uh, incorrect spelled words, but I did use spell check. So, in the Old Testament, we have a summary of some of the things that happen. It says, "The wicked will become like a vessel broken to pieces, ashes trotted underfoot, smoke that vanishes." Shaft carried away by the wind, a slug that melts, straw that is burned, thorns and stubble in the fire, wax that melts, or a dream that vanishes. That's Psalm 73, 20. For each one of those, I have a link to the verse that's describing. So the traditionalist view, the view that there is eternal conscious torment, has to look at all these verses and say, well, they're not like shaft carried away by the wind. They are not like smoke that vanishes, and they are not like a dream that vanishes. It would have to deny all those pictures because none of them describe an everlasting spectacle of indestructible material and an unending fire, right? Each one of these pictures, the end result is 
destruction. So the Old Old Testament uses about 50 different Hebrew words to describe this fate and about 70 figures of speech. Without exception, they portray destruction, extinction, or extermination. Not one of the verbs or word pictures remotely suggest the traditional doctrine. Well, that, that in and itself is not a really, really strong case because we know the New Testament brings clarification to a lot of things in the Old Testament. And so we also have to go to the Old Testament and see, yeah, but isn't there tons and tons of verses in the New Testament that say that hell is forever? I would argue there's three. There's only three verses, which is incredible that this whole uh, eternal conscious torment is held together by basically three verses. There's other verses that piggyback in, but they don't make nearly as strong as an argument as the three main. But first, let me give you a couple of verses that are also the main for the other side, because both sides is going to have their main verses, and you're going to have to choose, how do I read this verse? And so this is just basic biblical theology where you're reading something and you go, well, that seems different from what I read over here. The Bible does not contradict, contradict itself. You're going to have to look at it. You're going to have to study it. And you're going to have to say, how do these two work cohesively together? And usually that happens by allowing Scripture to interpret other Scripture. So here's a verse. This is Matthew 10, 28. And Jesus is talking, so we should take it very seriously. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, let's ask a question. Jesus is saying, hey, don't be afraid of what people can do to your flesh, but be afraid of the one who can do what? He uses the word destroy. And he says both body and soul in hell. So why would Jesus, if, if the, this, like the soul could not be destroyed, and we'll get to this here in a little bit, but he says the body and soul can be destroyed. Now, if it can't, was Jesus being irresponsible in his use of changing, of using this word, right? Because he's like, well, someday, Jesus, people are going to think the soul can be destroyed in hell if you say things like that. So that's one verse where we should just go, hmm, I've read that a million times. I've, I've always believed in eternal conscious torment, and I've read the Bible a bunch, but if you don't hear the opposing view, then you don't look at these verses the same way, and you go, oh, wait, okay, I can see how somebody might read this verse and say that, well, yeah, it is possible for somebody to be destroyed in hell. And there's another verse that's really popular that we overlook the same thing, where somebody might say, this is an argument for my case and not the eternal conscious torment. That verse is the one that my boys spent memorizing last night uh, while I am home more often. I'm really trying to make sure that we work on our scripture memorization. And there's nothing cuter than a four-year-old with a lisp try to say John 3.16. It melts me every time. I'm just a big ball of tears in the corner like, God loves you, buddy. Uh, so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not what? perish, perish, but have eternal life. And so this is where, remember I said this view has two names, conditional immortality. 
Well, what is conditional immortality? If you just broke the two words down, it means that there is a condition that has to happen in order for someone to live forever. That not everybody by nature is eternal. But John says, there are those who will perish, and perish has an end result in mind, right? It's not who will eternally perish. It's that eventually, if something is like a car that's rusting, eventually gets, it's perishing, right? You see all the rust on it. And unless somebody comes in and like does a whole bunch of work, it's going to continue to perish until it is eventually perished, right? Oh, what happened to that person? They perished, right? It's a way to say they are gone. There is a time where people perish and then they are perished. Sorry if that gives you a headache. It just did to me. So it says some people perish and the others are given eternal life. There's this very clear distinction about the only ones who live forever. And the Bible is very clear that says this, that immortality is a gift given only to God's people. Immortality is not something we have by nature. So there's a long list of verses I could go through in the New Testament that seem to say that the wicked are destroyed. And it sounds very much like the Old Testament. So there's burned up Shaft, there's trees, weeds, branches. These all get burned or destroyed. There's a destroyed house, discarded fish, uprooted plant, chopped down tree. That's like Matthew 7, 27, Matthew 13, 48, 15, 13, Luke 13, 7, and the list goes on and on. So those are verses that the New Testament would hold up and say, hey, these verses seem to hint at the wicked being destroyed. So let's focus on just a few verses. So let's condense this down. I want to make this as simple as we possibly can. Not because I think you're dumb. I don't. I think we have a very highly intelligent audience. But because when you hear something you haven't heard for the first time, you need to sometimes hear it like five or six times. And then you're like, okay, that makes sense. So I I really, if I want you to think about this, it doesn't matter what side of the argument you come out on in my belief and like my opinion, I just like for people to go, hmm, I want to look into that myself. So all I'm trying to do, not trying to change anybody's mind, I'm just trying to get your mind to go, hmm, instead of COVID-19, maybe I could research something else, right? You don't have to look up COVID videos all day long. You can research something else. And this will hopefully get you into your Bible. Um, So what about all the verses that talk about eternal fire? Isn't, Isn't that pretty cut and clear. Like, so the Bible says there's eternal fire. Here's a verse. This is from Jude chapter seven, verse seven. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immortality and went after strange flesh, flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Remember that very first verse we read in 2 Peter connected what happens to the wicked with Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to notice a pattern. There's two events in Scripture that get connected to what happens to the wicked after they die. One is Sodom and Gomorrah, and the other one is flood. Right? So you have to ask yourself, are the people that died in the floods still drowning? And are the people that were destroyed by a fire that consumes, right, in Sodom and Gomorrah, are they still being consumed? Is Sodom and Gomorrah still on fire. No, nope, it, it's not. It's not on fire. So sometimes uh, the Bible will talk about an eternal fire and it, you'll go, oh, well, that means it's for eternal. But there's a, po- there's a second possibility, and I'll get to that here in a second. 
Sometimes the Bible links fire and destruction together. In fact, it usually does. Fire is usually shown to be destructive. So 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. The earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. They say the word water a lot. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So here, being reserved for fire and destruction is used together to say, this is what happens to ungodly men, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, the traditional view would have to say they are not actually destroyed They just are in the process of this never-ending destruction, right? But the Bible doesn't say never-ending destruction. It just says the destruction of ungodly men. Let's look at the verses that really argue against uh, the view I'm trying to give you. And uh, these are verses for eternal conscious torment. So Mark 9, 47 through 48 says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Ouch. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where the fire is not quenched. So obviously, if the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, then hell is eternal. That wording, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, do you know it shows up elsewhere in the Bible? So if we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible, Where does this phrase come from? Because it's such a unique phrase. We know that the author of Mark is pulling from something else. So people would go, oh yeah, that's just like what happened in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 22. And it says they will look out, and this is a prophecy about the destruction of um, the southern kingdoms. And it says they they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die the fire that burns them will not be quenched. They will become loathsome to all mankind. So they are looking on dead bodies, not living people, dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die and the fire that burns will not be quenched. So I got another question. What does it mean that a fire won't be quenched? Does that mean it'll burn forever Or does that mean you can't prematurely put it out? If your house was on fire and it was a little fire, the fire department could come along and quench that fire. They could put it out before it burns out. So those are the two options when it comes to fire. Either you put out a fire prematurely, you quench it, right? You get a fire extinguisher and you spray it and it just goes out. Or the fire burns all the material that is available for it to burn. And once it has burnt all of it up, once it's become a consuming fire and it has consumed everything else, then the fire will die down, die out on its own. So does the Bible say that quenching a fire means um, it burns forever? Or does it mean that it burns until it's destroyed everything? The Bible interprets the Bible, right? So here's Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48. Say to the southern force, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm about to set fire to you and it will consume all your trees, both green and dry. 
the blazing flame will not be quenched, and every face from the south to north will be scorched by it. Everyone will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It will not be quenched. So here he's saying that this fire, he's like, I'm going to set this place on fire, and it's going to be so powerful, you can't quench it. It's going to burn all your trees, both green and dry. The blazing flame will not be quenched. And so I, I would say that this is saying that to quench a fire, defined what it means from the Bible, means you cannot put it out prematurely. Now, what about eternal fire? So we say, okay, there are verses that say a fire that is not quenched, but there are verses that say an eternal fire, and eternal means eternal, right? So Matthew 25, 46. It says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but they're righteous to eternal life. And for anybody that might hold a view different than the traditional view, this is the hardest verse. If somebody, hey, I don't think you should ever work your way around a verse. I, I think... Like if a verse shows up and it messes with um, whatever philosophy or idea or theology you held before, you don't submit to the philosophy, you submit to scripture. So if this verse is all there is, then I would say, well, this one would define all the ones that seem to say is temporary, but this one says, well, this is eternal fire. So you have Matthew 25, 46, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So there it is, eternal punishment. Now, Jude 1.7 says something that's interesting. It says that Sodom and Gomorrah will burn with an eternal fire. But Sodom and Gomorrah is not still on fire. You can go there, right? So it seems to say that the action or the process uh, was temporary, but the result is everlasting. Let me say that again. When the New Testament uses the adjective eternal, to describe a process or activity, it is the result that is everlasting, not the process itself. So that would mean something like, well, let me give you examples because the Bible does this. Hebrews 5, 9 says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, so we have this, this uh, adjective eternal and it's connected to salvation. Now, we know that what Jesus did on the cross providing salvation for us, right? He's not going to be on the cross forever, but it was a one-time act that had eternal ramifications. So you have eternal salvation, but you are not being eternally saved. Jesus is not eternally on the cross providing salvation for us. Eternal salvation does not suggest an unending process, but rather a result that lasts forever. So the same is true for eternal redemption. That's Hebrews 9.11. In eternal judgment, Hebrews 6.2. So in all these instances where it uses the word eternal, it's having to say that, look, the process, we are not eternally being judged. There is a time of judgment and when that judgment is over, it's irreversible, meaning it lasts forever. The results, the ramification of that action is going to be irreversible. That is how we, uh, that is how those in that camp that reject eternal conscious torment would understand the word eternal. So there's a choice made. Do, do you say, you know, okay, for those examples, I see what you're saying, but I still think when it says this, 
These are just decisions that have to be made. You have to make these decisions to say, how do I understand eternal in this sense? And some would say it's an action that has eternal consequence. Let me, um, so this is Luke 13, three through five. So I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Just like in John three sixteen, there's that word perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Luke is using this example in 13.5 where this tower falls and kills on these people. And he's like, look, those people who were squished, that's what's going to happen to you. That's what perishing means, that there will be an eventual end destruction. So although that uh, Matthew 25, 46 is the strongest verse, there are two more verses. Remember I said there were three, and I'm trying to pull up my notes here because so, I wasn't planning on reading the other ones, but I want to go ahead because I don't want you to think that I'm cheating. So the other verses are from Revelations. So the three main verses that argue for eternal torment, Matthew 25, 46, which we just looked at, and we say, hey, there's a different way to read eternal, and we read eternal differently, especially in like Hebrews that we just read. We understand what it means to be eternal. So you could say the punishment lasts a time period, but then eventually it is destroyed, right? The other verses were Revelations 14, 9 through 11, and 20, 10 through 16. So what are those verses? Let's take a look. Um, This is Revelations 14, 10 through 11. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So, whoa, man, see, yeah, man, that's pretty heavy because the smoke goes up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night, right? And these are worshipers of the beast and its image. So the best way to understand any kind of imagery from Revelations, Revelations was called uh, apocalyptic literature. It's a style of writing. Uh, But Revelations also pulls heavy from the Old Testament for the type of language it uses. For Revelations 14, we have fire and sulfur, which is a callback to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read that in Genesis 19, 24. And so it's using already this imagery that we have seen connected time after time, Sodom and Gomorrah to the destruction. We don't see Sodom burning, nor do we see those who drown in the flood always drowning. But these are the two main word pictures used for what happens to the wicked. Then we see rising smoke that goes up forever and ever. Rising smoke and fire and sulfur often go together. You can see much of the same language used in Isaiah when he talks about the destruction of Edom. So this is a literal destruction that happened in history. And here's the description of what happened. It says, it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever from generation to generation. It will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So this place, Edom, is destroyed by consuming fire. And we are told that the smoke goes up forever. We have, again, like another example of where the fire will not be quenched, which means it's too big and powerful to be put out early. That leads 
that fire leads to smoke because the destruction has happened. So you have this smoke because the destruction has already happened. The smoke goes up forever, symbolizing nothing can ever grow there again. And he makes that point. Um, from generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So it's saying now it's rendered useless. No one will ever go through it. This language seems to say that it is totally destroyed. So when we see the author of Revelation call back to the Old Testament as he regularly does, we can't just brush off the comparison of these two verses. If this is what he had in mind, and by the language it's possible that he's referencing Isaiah, we would say, well, Edom is still not on fire. So maybe this language can mean a real destruction, but it's just figurative language to say that it's destroyed, it's totally destroyed. So consider that next elsewhere in Revelation. The same imagery is used of smoke rising forever from torment. Um, From Mystery Babylon, the great harlot of Revelations 18, it is said three times to be tormented. And in chapter 19, smoke rises from her forever. But the angel in chapter 18 tells us that the harlot is a symbol for a city and that the imagery of her being tormented is symbolism for the city being destroyed. So the angel actually tells us how to understand smoke going up forever and ever, uh, you know, rising night and day, because in chapter 18, it says it's uh, that smoke rising forever from torment and revelation is a symbolism of destruction. The angel tells us that that was an image of the harlot uh, Babylon being destroyed. So um, Revelations 21 through 16. I'll let you read that one for yourself because uh, I don't want to keep this going. I want to sum it up as much as possible. But um, we also see that hell is prepared for the angels and the devils. So it, that, it says, oh, you know, there's an eternal torment for the angels and devils. Well, that's fine if those that rebelled, uh, demons, excuse me, um, the devil and demons, not angels and the devil. Uh, that's fine, but it doesn't say it's for people. If, if this view that I'm, I'm not advocating for totally, I, I think it's a totally valid view. I think it should be more in the discussions when people talk about hell. I don't think it should be something that you've never heard before. And, and quite frankly, I think it's so interesting. Um, I just think people should hear the argument for the fact that hell might not last forever. But if the church for the last 1,500 years has held their traditional view, why have they? And I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but we know um, the Jewish encyclopedia, nowhere in the Old Testament does say people live forever, right? The eternal life is only granted to God's people. Everybody else, it seems to say, is destroyed. It was Plato, a Greek philosopher, who said that the soul was eternal. So it was not a, something from the Bible. Here you have a non-believing philosopher saying that the soul by nature is immortal. And so Augustine, who's one of the great early church fathers, a man of great respect, uh, but they are not flawless, grew up living in a world where the philosophy of Plato was assumed by everyone. So if you already thought that the soul by nature was eternal, then you would just imagine then, well, either you go to the good place forever, you go to the bad place forever. But there's early church fathers, Irenaeus, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and uh, many others. In fact, you've heard me talk about Ignatius. Ignatius of Antioch is worth reading. You can buy his letters on Amazon. They're not too hard to read. In fact, they sound a lot like the New Testament. 
So Ignatius was a disciple of John. John is one of the closest, if not the closest disciple to Jesus. Ignatius is a very close disciple of John. Like John taught Ignatius in person. And we have his letters. And by the way, Ignatius talks. Ignatius sounds more like somebody who believed the wicked are destroyed than he does the traditional view. In fact, when uh, the Great Reformation happened, one of the things that um, was being argued against is the Catholic Church said the soul was by nature immortal. And Martin Luther argued against that. He's like, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. He says that eternal life is a gift from God. Either you perish or the eternal life, which is the gift of God, right? So that's what's going to happen. So I hope, I hope we kept this at a somewhat short. If you would like me to do, uh, I, I figured for these next couple of weeks, while we have some time, I want to bring up subjects that I think are interesting that you've probably never heard before. Some of you might be more interested than the others. I think asking the question, is hell eternal really interesting? The next one I will do will be on post-millennialism, <laughs> which is end time stuff. And post-millennialism is the idea that the world is actually getting better and Jesus wins and not the doomsday, everything's going to hell in a handbasket and we're just waiting for Jesus to return. So um, that'll be a fun one. You're like, wait, that people believe that stuff? Yes, yes. And there's lots of good verses. So we'll see which side we end up on. Now, I, just practically speaking, why is this conversation on hell important? Uh, notice I haven't made any emotional appeals. I haven't appealed to anything, but like, isn't it wrong for people? Look, if people suffer forever, if that's the way God decides, I'm okay with that. Like whatever God decides. Um, we see in our own court system, what is the ultimate penalty someone can pay? It's the death penalty, isn't it? The worst punishment is not life in prison. We say it's capital punishment. It's reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. The worst penalty is extinction, that you cease to exist. Is it possible that our governmental judicial practices are a reflection of God's ultimate justice? In so many ways, uh, much of our laws are based upon biblical teachings. Is this one as well? Now, I'm not personally for the death penalty, because um, I believe everybody should have a chance to hear the gospel as many times as possible. And uh, if God wants to take them home, he can take them home. I understand there's different views on that, and we could have a conversation on that. I, it doesn't matter to me which side you fall on. The one does not make you less of a Christian than the other. You might have your reasons, I might have our reasons, and we can have healthy discussions about this. But one of the reasons I know that I, I find this an attractive view, because then the time fits the crime, right? And we don't know to the greatness of how, like God is pure holiness. So we have no idea what pure holiness is. And we know just one sin, his holiness is so great, cast us out of his presence forever. Just eating a piece of fruit you weren't supposed to, you're out of his presence because that's how great he is. But are we going to say that after 8 trillion years, God's just getting warmed up? Or do we say that, look, the, the greatness to which you sinned against God is the time that you will suffer, that there is a penalty, but it eventually it's over with? And I, I think there's just some real good questions to ask about that. 
And I, I'm really, I'm really interested in that very first verse we read, 2 Peter 2, 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I had never read that and go, wait, by extinction, my brain, your brain, automatically goes to eternal conscious torment. And it doesn't matter to me which way this conversation goes. All I want to do is be biblical. So, interesting, huh? I bet you thought, you know, like, you're never like, I never heard that before. This is the view people hold. There are good, Bible-believing, conservative, Southern Baptist scholars. There have been great histories and teachers that have held this view. But it is the minority view. It is the minority view, and that's okay. Um, thank you guys for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is supported by me. <laughs> so if you would love to donate uh, or have a subject you would like me to cover, you can go to calebmore.tv and there is a donate button on there. But of course, money is tight right now for everybody. Just hunker down, people. We're going to be all right. We're going to get through this just fine. Now, I would be interested if there would be some... Um, Q&A after this, that you may go, hey, Caleb, you forgot about this verse, or hey, Caleb, I think you skipped uh, too many verses, you need to deal with this. So you can uh, do some questions, and I will respond to them in the next podcast. And like I said earlier, if you are interested in my notes on this subject, you can contact me through calebmore.tv. I have some other stuff. I blog for the Southern Baptist Convention. But more than anything, I would just like to hear from you. So check out the website. And how did you dig that new intro music, right? That was pretty legit. I'm going to play a little bit more here as we head out. Sisters.